All right. Welcome back. Another show on The Big Ticket Life. Pleasure to have my guest Dave Albin with us this week. And Dave, welcome to the show. We're going to just jump right in, if that's all right with you. Let's go. All right. So, you know, this is this is a topic that's front of mind right now for me because I am in the midst as we uh, have our show today of producing my book, my first like book book. I've written four other books for like niche purposes to like sell masterminds and you know for my retail business. But this is like a book to sit on a bookshelf that people buy because they want to be inspired and nice. lift themselves up, right? And so. Right. This question I want to ask you is around, you know, how we're coded in our childhood, because you have an interesting childhood. And so I'll preface it with this statement of, we know today we can affect our DNA and where there's gene therapy. We know we can affect all of that as we, as we age, as we get older, we can do positive things for our health. So being that we can do that now. To me, the inverse stands true that our DNA gets coded by our experiences and the inputs as a child. And I think there's, there's science there as well, right? Like I believe that through the age of seven, we're, we're really programmed. And so your life prior to age seven was, uh, was interesting. Definitely some childhood traumas. You know, born in Hollywood to a single mother and adopted by your aunt and uncle at the age of five and at age 11, you were told that your aunt and uncle weren't really your parents. So walk us through that and walk me, walk our listeners and watchers through how you feel that kind of framed your life and what you had to overcome to find the success you found, because you've had some tremendous successes in your life. Well, you know, mom did the best she could, right? Because I come, my parents came from a generation, man. They, they saved the world, right? You know, my, my, my biological father was a pilot in Korea. The father that raised me was um, a war hero in, in, in Europe fighting the Nazis. Uh, my best friend's dad was in Pearl Harbor fighting the Japanese. And then while the men were off at war, right, the women were home doing everything. I mean, my mom was known as Rosie the Riveter, my biological mother. Uh, when, when the war was going on, she was working for McDonnell Douglas, man. She was building airplanes. And so, right. you know, she wasn't afraid of hard work. That's for sure. And, you know, two months before I was born, my biological father, we don't really know what happened to him. We just know that he injured himself. They put a plate in his head to save his life. And, um, two months before I was born, man, he was always complaining about pain and how much didn't know if he could put up with much more. And one day he told my mom, I'm going to the grocery store. And we never saw or heard from him again. So that mm. put my mom in a really rocky place. Man. She had two other boys. Uh, she had a, we had a cousin, um, and a grandmother and all six of us were living in a one bedroom apartment in Hollywood, California and right across the street from Hollywood high school. And then when I was five, it was like, that was the turning point. She couldn't afford it. She couldn't make ends meet. And so she did a very loving thing. Yeah. She, she got a hold of her sister and said, Hey, would you, would you adopt David? And she did. So Bob and Pat Albin. Got, grabbed me up from Hollywood at five, at the age of five, took me to Long Beach, California. And in the beginning, man, it was a beautiful life. You know, Bob was a decorated, um, um, military, you know, veteran. He was a career veteran. He was in the National Guard and the Army and he was an officer. And so, you know, there was income and a nice house and there was always food on the table. 
And we went camping because we lived in California. So we went to Yosemite and Big Bear and Lake Arrowhead. And so for the first six years until I was 11, everything was perfect. I mean, it was like the, you know, the perfect childhood. And then on the first day of summer, man, in 1964, mom came and got me out of the TV room that morning and said, David, we need to talk to you. They set me down at the kitchen table and her mom, my mom, you know, I call her my mom. She was my aunt, but I still call her mom, put her hand on my my hand and she said, David, what we need to tell you is we're not your parents. Yeah. Okay. Well, that what does that mean? At 11 years old, you can't really process that, right? In fact, she even went on to say, you know, your aunt Dean, you know, I'm like, yeah. And she goes, well, that's actually your mother. And I remember thinking, I don't even like her, right? Because she bothered me. Wow. Um, because when she was around me, Jeff, you know, I want to be really clear, because she was always touching me, right? She always wanted to sit by me. She wanted to hug me and kiss me and hold me. Well, duh, I was her son, right? So anytime right. she could be around me, right, she wanted to be close to me. Well, that's when my life took a hard turn. Because very, very, very shortly after they told me this, they both started drinking. Well, now they had sworn off drinking when they adopted me, but. So again, right after they told me, now my dad was under a lot of pressure. He was working in the Pentagon. We had just come out of the Bay of Pigs. You know, all the missiles and the Cuban crisis and all that was going on in Cuba. Um, Kennedy had just been assassinated in, the, in November of 1963. So there was a lot going on in my dad's world. I'm not trying to justify, but I'm just saying there were reasons, I guess, he started drinking again. And telling me that I wasn't his son bothered him. Um, and so they both started drinking and that's when it got ugly really fast, especially for Bob. Um, he just couldn't handle the alcohol. And I think my mom was drinking with him just to try to keep up with him. And so one day they went off to the store and I knew where the booze was. They were hiding it in paint, plain sight. I went over there. I opened the cabinet and I brought it out. It was a, a, a big old half gallon of brandy, nasty smelling stuff, man. <laughs> I poured it in a coffee cup about half full up and I downed it. And man, I never had a chance. I mean, I literally believe I was an alcoholic right on the spot because um, it just took over. You know, you, you, you feel like Superman, you know, it was just exhilarating kind of a thing. Right. And so that just led, right? Because once I got on that path, the next thing you know, you're hanging around the wrong people. You're getting more booze. You're getting into drugs. So by the time I got into junior high school and high school, I was doing hard drugs. In fact, when I was junior in high, in, in high school, the very, like the, within the first month of my junior year, they called me in the office and said, you're out. We're done. You're expelled. And so hmm. you know, now I'm kind of out on my own at this point. <clears throat> you know, things just got really weird, really bad, a lot of bad circumstances, you know, guns and prostitutes and gangs, and it just escalated from there, right? It's, it's your peer group, man. You start hanging around with these people. You start acting out like they do. And then uh, after a few marriages, like three of them, um, um, I on June 8th of 1988, when I woke up that morning, that was it. That was the day. That was threshold. And I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm out. I cannot do this. Because I was in so much physical and emotional pain, including spiritual pain. So I was yeah. married to a woman at that time. I'm in my third marriage, right? She's got three kids. And I married her because I thought, wow, maybe I'll calm down because of these three kids. Well, you know, it looked good on paper, but it just didn't. When you're that grossly addicted, you need more than just, you know, this idea because I married a woman with three kids, I'm going to be able to use it. And so that morning mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I'm done. This is it. 
And my first thought was just load my pistol, put it in my mouth and take my own life. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. Do you have any idea what that's going to do to those kids and this family that you've married? Because I was living in the basement and they were living upstairs just to get away from me because I was pretty violent. And I remember thinking, man, you just can't do that. That's going to destroy those kids' lives. Hell, you're killing them too when you pull that trigger. So figure out another way, pal. And the next thing I know, I had this thought in my head, call Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, what's interesting about that is that I didn't know who AA was. I had no references. I didn't know anybody in AA. I'd never been to AA. And yet there was the thought. Well, it was enough because I called. And I got a woman on the phone and apparently I convinced her, gave her enough information where she called uh, a guy to come get me. And they literally came and picked me up on June 8th of 88. And when wow. I got to AA, man, I was like, I was whole. I had never felt more close to a group of people than I was at Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I felt like I, I belonged there. And these guys were really, really amazing at helping. And so one day turned into two, and two days turned into a week, and a week turned into a month. And after I got to a month, they gave me a coin. said one month on it. And then I got one for two months, three months, six months, nine months, and one year. This last June 8th here in 2023, I picked up a chip for 35 years. So oh, fantastic. Congratulations yeah. on that. Thank yep. you. Yeah. And I, I owe it to AA and my brothers and sisters there, man, because the AA works. It re- if you work it, right? Yeah. It works. Yeah. Well, what was happening is because I had insomnia in the early days, I was up late one night, three o'clock in the morning. Up there, I'm watching an infomercial, and there he is. Mr. Enthusiasm, a young Tony Robbins is selling yep. personal power, right? And he said a couple of things that really got my interest. One, he's, we'll do more to avoid pain than we will to gain pleasure. And I thought, well, that's why I drank. I was drinking to try to avoid pain or gain pleasure. And then it, you know, it disappeared, including the drugs. I, I couldn't find anything that looked like avoiding pain or gaining pleasure. And then he said that, you know, how we make decisions is we do it based on inspiration or desperation. And I thought, wow, I'm pretty desperate. So yeah, man, I signed up for his program. They sent it to you and it came in a box and it came on these little white things called cassette tapes, right? Yep. Um, and so it was a 30 day program. So I plugged it in, did what the man taught me to do and brother, it worked. And yeah. so I had a buddy in AA and to talking and. And uh, I bought, I let him borrow my program. Well, seven years later, I'm talking about, you know, this is 1988. Now I'm in 1995. And Dan, my buddy in AA, who I loaned the program to, said, hey, he called me and said, hey, Alvi, did you know that Tony Robbins is coming to town? I said, no, had no clue. He goes, dude, come on. We got to go see this guy. Right. And I said, yeah, sure. I'll go with you. And he goes, great. Let me call you back. So he called me back about an hour later and he said, done. We pick up the tickets at will call. And here's what they told us to do. Number one, bring a good attitude. I said, Dan, how much was the ticket? He said, $695. I said, Dan, for 700 bucks, I'll play full out. Don't you worry. And he said, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, be ready to play full out, drink a lot of water, hydrate, bring snacks, because we're going to spend a lot of time in the room. What an understatement that was. And then he said, as he's getting ready to get off the phone, he goes, oh, wait, I forgot to tell you something. Um, we're going to be doing a fire walk. I remember thinking, oh, hell no. You're out of your mind. I'm not saying anything to Dan, right? 
Jeff, I'm just kind of going along and quiet. I don't want to, you know, I'm saying, no, hell no, I'm not doing it. But I don't want Dan to think that, right? So I'm just kind of going along with it. Yeah, sure, Dan. Sure, we'll do a firewalk. Well, when he hung up the phone, I'm not, that's a hard no. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, so the, f- the first firewalk was the first stress test against that plan full out. Well, that, that and, you know, fear had been controlling my life my entire life. So yeah, fear was yeah. making all my decisions for me, right? So it was no different than hearing about a firewalk. Because again, I didn't know what a firewalk was. What the hell is that? Right. I don't know. I had no references for that either. I just know I said no. Well, the day comes, right? And we get to the event. Tony takes the stage at two o'clock in the afternoon. And the next thing I know, it's after midnight. We've been in a room mm. for 10 hours with Tony Robbins. Uh, talk about bring snacks because you spend a lot of time in the room was an understatement. I, I would have starved to death, right? And all of a sudden, you know, we're, it's after midnight. All of a sudden, Tony goes, take your shoes off. And I'm like, oh, no, I see where you're going with that, pal. You're not tricking me. And and, and so, and then I'm, I'm with 3,500 people, by the way, at this event, right? And they're all taking their shoes off. And I'm like, people, no, no, you're falling for it. Don't go towards the light, right? And now I've got a dilemma. What do I do? Because they're all taking their shoes off. So if I don't take my shoes off, they're going to know I'm a coward. And he's taking you out into a big parking lot, right? So I'm like, all right, well, just take your shoes off. And when you get out there, just go hide in the back. No one's going to know. Well, it gets worse because as soon as, just before he gets you to go outside, he gets everybody chanting and clapping, right? So everybody, 3,500 people are going, yes, yes, yes. And I'm thinking, oh, what a dog and pony show this is, right? Right. It It gets worse. Because when he gets you outside... Kind of like junk, from the infomercials, but wait, there's more. But wait, it gets <laughs> worse. Oh, yeah. There's a lot more. Because when he gets you outside in this giant parking lot where you know they facilitate the firewalk, he's got African drummers. Right? So now it's dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Everybody's clapping and everybody's screaming, yes. And I'm walking out there going, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, I've never experienced anything like this in my life. To this day, I've never experienced anything like this in my life, except a Tony Robbins seminar. Well, when you get out there logistically, Jeff, what they do is they start a big fire that, that early day, like when he gets on stage at two, right? And that, and that pit is probably 30 feet wide, 70 feet long. And they stack, they stack wood on it all day, right? So it right. renders. So at the end of the evening, you've got this giant pile of clothes. Well, what they do, is they would take a wheelbarrow over to that pit and they'd load it up and then they'd bring a wheelbarrow and they would put it in between two lanes. And kind of like you're seeing there, they, they, they shovel it, right? And so they sprinkle those coals on top of the lane. And the fire lane's probably, I don't know, three feet by 18 feet, something like that. And again, they take a flathead shovel and they sprinkle those coals out. And yeah. that's, what you, that's what you walk on, right? Well, I'm not going anywhere near that. I want as far away from that as I possibly can. So I'm hiding in the back. Well, the thing is, Robbins knows, he researched this. He knows that firewalking is literally one of the most life-changing experiences any human will go through. So he doesn't want anybody not to do it. So he knows there's going to be people like me that are going to go in the back and hide out. So what's he do? He trains people to come find you. Yeah. And here they come. Here he comes. Here comes this guy, man. And he, and he, and he sees me and he gets about 20 feet from me and he kind of looks at me with a puzzled look on his face and he's like, 
are you okay? And of course, when we're not, what do we say? Oh, sure. I'm dead. I'm fine. Yeah. Nothing to see here. Move along, sport. Then all of a sudden he goes, well, listen, hey, man, are you going to walk tonight? And I said, absolutely not. Like, you know, and I said it with that tonality. <laughs> and he's like, hey, man, that's cool. That's not a problem. We don't want you to do anything you don't want to do. And I'm thinking, okay, I like this guy. He's going to get me out of here. Well, now here's a stranger. By the way, Jeff, I don't know who this guy is to be right? Because without him, I'm not on the big podcast, Ticket Big Life, man, right? With you, if he didn't ask me this next question. And the question was, well, wouldn't you at least like to watch? And I thought for a minute, yeah, sure. Let's watch these people burn their feet off. That should be entertaining. Let's do that. Well, he goes, well, listen, man, you know, you can't see anything from back here. You just, just, you know, just get in line. I had 3,500 people in front of me. I can't see it. I can hear it. They're already walking, right? People are already walking and they're screaming and yelling. They're celebrating. The drums are going. Everybody's chanting. I mean, again, it is intense. And so I get in line, right? And so I'm just kind of walking along and, you know, listening and observing. And all of a sudden this guy comes up to me and he whispers in my ear and he says, he knows when you're ready. When he says, go, you go. And pew, this guy just disappeared into the night. And I'm like, who was that? What was that about? You know, I mean, come on. Well, as I'm walking along, hundreds of people in front of me can't see anything. But I get to a point where I can see at an angle. And Jeff, they're doing it. Every race, mm -hmm. every creed, every color, every age, they are walking on fire. And my brain is like, you got to be kidding me. What's wrong with these people? Why would they do this? Metaphorically, what's going on here? And so now I'm mesmerized. I'm just staring at it. You know, it's like a car accident that you sit, you're not supposed to look at, but you stare at it anyway. And so I'm in, I'm in a trance watching these people. Well, the next thing I know, boom, guess where I am? I'm at the front, front of the line. line, front of the line, baby. It's fight or flight time, baby. And so I'm staring into the abyss. I'm looking down at that lane and those coals are glowing bright red. There's a wheelbarrow there. You can feel the heat coming off. And there's a trainer standing there. And all of a sudden, the trainer goes, eyes up. Oh, shoot. Yeah, right. right. Okay. I'm in a room with Robbins for 10 hours. Guess what he teaches you? Keep your eyes up. Look to the, look to the celebration. Don't stare at what you fear. Kind of metaphor for mm. life, right? right? So now my yeah. eyes are up. And the trainer goes, squeeze your fist and say yes. And I went, yes. And he went, stronger. And I went, yes. Well, he could tell. I was not in a peak state. I was leaving a lot on the table. So he screamed at me, stronger. He goes, go, go, go. I took off. Well, here's the first thing I learned about firewalking. When you take the first step, I'm guaranteed you'll take the second, third, fourth. You're not going to stop on that fire lane. Right? right. So he positions two people at the end of the fire lane that lock their arms. And they're like, and they stop you. And they're like, stop, wipe your feet and celebrate. So I'm wiping my feet and I'm celebrating. And all of a sudden it dawns on me. I burnt myself really bad, really bad. And I, I, I lift up my foot and I look at it. It's dirty, but there's actually no burns. Oh, it's my other foot. I look at it. It's dirty, but there's no burn. 
And now I'm looking back. I'm looking at the coals. I wasn't going to do it. I just did it. I just walked across coals that were a thousand degrees and I didn't burn myself. And you know what? I don't, I didn't have a clue how I did it. None, but I'd done it, right? You ever done that? You ever done something really cool? Mm -hmm. And you're like, that's right. This guy here, I did that, right? Yeah, Um, of course. And so now you're standing in the celebration end with all these thousands of other people and everybody is celebrating and they're jumping up and down. And I mean, at that moment, you feel like you could do anything. You could climb Everest, right? Your brain is just like in a whole different wavelength, right? Because your self-worth, your self-confidence, your self-belief just gets elevated. So your frequency comes up. All of us collectively, it comes up at the same time. Well, here's where it gets interesting. The next day. So I come in the next day, right? This is a four-day event, by the way. This is day one, the night of day one. Now we're on day two. We're standing in the foyer. We're getting ready to go into the venue. They're staging us. And I'm standing there, and I, to this day, I've never seen or witnessed anything like that either. Because people were laughing. They were crying. They were talking. They were communicating. They were hugging. Unlike anything I'd ever seen in my entire life. It was just beautiful. It was gorgeous to see. And I'm like, what the hell? I mean, did we drink the Kool-Aid last night, right? I mean, what's going on? It was a mutual connection. It was a mutual triumph. It's like a near, I call it like a near-death experience, right? When you survive something where you almost get killed, there's a connection between those humans forever. Right. And that's what was going on here. It was obviously, it wasn't a near-death, but it was pretty darn close. Well, later in the event, I met one of Tony's trainers, a guy by the name of Ted Macy. Super, super great guy. And so I'm talking and I'm like, dude, this must be really awesome that you get to spend time in this environment and be around it, be exposed to it. He goes, oh, yeah, it's freaking unbelievable. And he said, as a matter of fact, you see all those people over there with the black shirts with the pink writing on them? Yeah. He goes, those are volunteers, man. Those are people just like you that came to an event and came back and volunteer. So when you get home, call Robin's Research. Tell them you want a, a volunteer crew application. They'll send it to you. Fill it out. Send it back. And who, who knows? Maybe you'll get chosen. Well, I did that. And about seven weeks after I filled out that application, sent it in, I got a letter in the mail. It said, Dave Alvin, congratulations. You've been selected to crew with the Anthony Robbins companies in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And there I was, man. <laughs> my foot was in the door. Hmm. Well, my application explains my credentials and what, you know, what, what, where I might fit best on the team. I had a military background. I had a security background. So they immediately wanted to put me on Tony's security team to help take care of the celebrities. Because I was living on a farm and knew how to use tools and log splitters and drive equipment and stuff. They said, hey, man, he'll be perfect on the fire team as well. And that's where I landed. And that was in, you know, 95, 96. Well, in 96, they made me a subcontractor. Because as a volunteer, I think I volunteered five or six times. And you have to pay your way. Right? You have to pay. Yeah, you got to pay your airfare, your hotel, your food. Uh, But when you become a subcontractor, they pay for all that. and They pay you a little salary. Very little. And at least I was getting paid and not having to shell out two grand every time I wanted to be in the environment. Sure. And in, uh, in 2003, man, my life took another turn. And, um, Tony offered me the fire captain's position, which meant that wow. I would take over all of his firewalks globally. And I originally said no. And they asked why. I said, because I homeschool my kids. 
And they said, oh, okay, well, we missed that. So what if we pay to have your kids and your family go on the road with us? Would that make a difference? Well, yeah. Wow. So there my kids are, man. Their first it's event. A tremendous experience. Tremendous experience. Homeschooled, right? And their first event was in Sydney, Australia. Wow. So that's, they didn't learn anything through that journey, did they? <laughs> right. Being around, you know, Tony Robbins yeah. and all these celebrities and CEOs and, you know, you know it, man. It was, yeah. what an experience it was. Because they were six and nine when they first firewalked. My daughter was six. Wow. My son was nine years old the first time they trekked across the, the coal. Um, 2005, two years later, we went to London. And my family with me in tow, right? They, uh, we set a world record. Uh, we firewalked 12,300 people uh, we did it in the Docklands. Yeah, we did it in the Docklands out at the Excel Center in London. In fact, Tony's there this weekend. He's in Birmingham uh, at UPW in, in the UK uh, as we speak right now. Um, so that was a world record. Now I want to disclose, you know, Guinness was not there. Uh, you know, so it's not, you know, Guinness didn't, title it as a world record. But here's what I can tell you. There's never been a firewalk that big anywhere in the world, other than maybe right. another Tony Robbins seminar, right? Because I think they have 9,000 at this event. Well, this one right. here we did was 12,300. Um, and then that was I an mean, old that's take, old, What's that? I mean, just just doing, having that many people go through that. How long did that take? A day? A little over. Well, we had like 30... I think we had what thirty-seven lanes. Uh, it was okay. a little over an hour. It goes pretty fast, man. People when they're walking, they're walking. They're not strolling, right? <laughs> yeah, they're not long. I guess again. you're not taking a Sunday stroll on the fire I'm line. Not taking a Sunday um, stroll, bro. And I hadn't thought of having multiples. I guess my friend of reference was the the fire yeah, line right. that we had on One the screen. Lane. Yeah, no, yeah, we, yeah. We had thirty-seven lanes, I believe. So, and so you. So let me let me just pause for a second because sure. obviously when you get on a roll you get on a roll. Um, you unpack a lot there. There there there's a big open loop for me that I hope we you don't mind if we take a step back. Please do. So five years old, you go live with your aunt and uncle. Yeah. And then at eleven, you realize your aunt and uncle aren't your mom and dad that they are your aunt and uncle. Was there so? What happened where you're just not recalling? What happened to the memory there of, you know, I, I started out with mom and my brothers and sisters, and then I ended up with my aunt and uncle. Was there something, like, what happened there? I, I think how it kind of unfolded for me is that the first five, six years was magical, right? Camping, Yosemite. Okay. Big Bear, Lake Arrowhead, traveling around. I was able to take friends with me when we went camping. I grew up on a street with, with, with like 30, maybe 40 kids uh, that, yeah. that we've all stayed in contact with to this day. Uh, you know, we had two guys that grew up on my street that ended up playing in the NFL. So we were really oh, wow. tight group of people, right? So I had friends. Yep. In fact, one of my buddies, he, he just passed away here a month ago and his dad worked for Procter and Gamble. And every time I would walk by his house, I could see him back there in the garage and he was always tinkering with something. He built doom buggies and, you know, because he was so mechanical and engineering, he was always tinkering with something. And he'd see me and I'd stop and look at his Walt Pasco and Walt would say, Hey boy, what are you doing? Come back here. I want to show you something. He knew. 
he knew that my parents were drinking and he knew that I was going through hell. Mm. And so he would bring me in, right? And I had other parents on my street that did that as well. And then I had a lot of good buddies. You know, back in those days, we'd get on our bicycles and I was uh, in East Long Beach, so I could ride to Seal Beach and go to the beach. You know, it probably took less than an hour to to ride our bikes there. Yeah. Um, so I found things a, to do. Yeah. I mean, there, yeah, from a historical perspective, yeah, there's a, I would call it like a magical time capsule of this idyllic living in California in that time period. I mean, what a blessing to, it have, been, was. to have been a youth in that time. Oh. Why do you think, do you mind sharing if you know why your aunt and uncle decided to, you know, get you up to speed at age 11? I don't know. I, I questioned this for years. Um, Interesting. You know, I, I, I reserved myself because like my biological father, right? I've never seen a picture, nothing. And so I got to a point where I was like, okay, you know, th that intrigued me more than anything else. Who's my dad? Right. right. And something right. magical happened with that. Uh, when my mom got sick, she was living in California still, my biological mother, we brought her, we, we were living on a farm in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia at the time. And so I brought her to the farm and she, she lived her final days there. And when she passed, we were going through her things and we found a book and the book were, was pilots in Korea. And I remember thinking, oh man, I'm going to see my mm. dad for the first time, right? I'm really excited about that. And you know, the other right. thing about that is that I made peace with that. I'm like, look, I'm not going to drag that into my future. Right. I get it. You know, he did the best he could. You know, Bob and Pat, Alvin, who raised me, they did the best they could. My mom, who's now living with me in the final years of their life, because Bob and Pat had already passed away by this time. She did. They all did the best they could. And I was okay with that. So I looked through this book, right? Where I think I'm going to find my dad. Didn't find him. My wife went through it. I went through it. She went through it. We went through it like, like a dozen times. We never found my dad. Because I had his name on my, my, my live birth certificate. His name was in there. Right? Yeah. So I had it. Then I was like, you know, what's she doing with this book? My dad was a pilot in Korea, and here's a book. I mean, how has he not been there? Right. Well, um, years later, a couple of years ago, I think it was in 2018, my son and I um, were out to dinner. And when we go out to dinner, we always take really amazing care of all the servers because that's just the way we like to roll, right? We mm -hmm. talk to them. I told them my mom was a server at the Roosevelt Hotel. She taught me to teach, teach, you know, to treat all servers with love and kindness and respect. And so yep. they love that. They want to hear that. They love the story about mom, right? And so we're sitting there and I'm eating dinner. All of a sudden I look up and I look at my son and I go, oh my God, I'm having dinner with my dad's grandson. And Jeff, mm -hmm. I can see my dad in his face. And, and I think because I remained open to the idea that I was okay, I was going to love my dad regardless of what happened and him taking his own life and all that, it was like that moment was given to me in time. And it yeah, was so... That's beautiful. It was, man. It was a... My son's looking at me like, okay, dad, what's going on? What, what, look at him. <laughs> like, all right. Yep. And I got to share that with him. Because it was good for him too, right? Because that's his granddad, his grandfather, right? Sure, sure. And so it was a really magical moment. And of course, I told my daughter, and and so you know we've 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 just enjoyed that moment. It was so magical and such a beautiful blessing in us. And again, it was so releasing, right? So it just 
It allowed me to continue to go through life, uh, living a life that's uh, very, I know I'm blessed. Uh, I, I've, I've been given so many wonderful things in my life and that's, so I choose, right? That's my choice. Right. Victor yeah. Frankl taught us that in Man's Search for yeah. Meaning, right? You, you yeah, choose, I mean, there's, man. Yep, there's the, there's the operative word, choosing. You know, and you said something else about, I think it was in 88, uh, drinking, you were thinking of ending it and, you know, uh, or you shared about something being more than an idea. And I actually jotted that down. So I have to review my notes because I, I make notes as we go along because I share out moments from our time together then with everybody so they can maybe get a little sampling and then get into the full show later. But it, it struck me because we can't just chase these ideas. There's got to be, this was it. There's got to be a bigger purpose. That bigger purpose was not abandoning those children. Right. Absolutely. You know, you know that's kind of interesting because when I got to AA, the 12 steps have to take care of the wreckage of the past, right? And, it, and in the preamble of AA, it says, when anyone anywhere reaches out, I want the hand of AA to be there. And for that, I'm responsible. Well, I live by that creed. And so when you're, when you're dealing with AA and the personal development industry, and they're coming together at the same time, it's magical. Because what happened to me was, as I realized the two most important times in my life was the moment I was born and the moment I figured out why. And that came from firewalking hundreds of thousands of people and watching them transform right on the spot. So I knew I was destined uh, to do that. And, you know, it, I, I wondered it sometimes, you know, I'm traveling all over the world and it's wonderful. And I'm with Tony, I'm with all these other really cool people, but you still question it sometimes. Like, why am I here? What's going on? Um, we did an event where I got clarity on that. We did an event in Tampa. And there was a young man there, uh, was a collegiate athlete in high school, and he got hit by a drunk driver and he lost both legs. So his whole identity mm -hmm. got shaken. You know, his, his life changed in a heartbeat and he was contemplating suicide. And one of his buddies said, Hey, I know you like Tony Robbins. He's coming to town. Why don't you go see Tony before you take your life? Well, what he did. Well, I don't know. We're out there. We're at the firewalk. It's midnight, thousand, couple thousand people. It's dark. You can't really see anything. And all of a sudden, Tony turned and he looked at me. And he had a really bizarre look on his face. Like, what's going on? Well, I can't see the kid in the wheelchair. Next thing you know, there he is. This kid wheeled his wheelchair right up to the lane. And a lot of upper body strength. And Tony bent down to whisper, like, you know, do you need help? What's going on? And this kid went like, no, go. I got this. Well, the next thing mm. we know, Jeff, this kid positioned himself, got his torso up on the top of that, that wheelchair. And he flung himself forward. He landed on his hands. And he walked across the fire. And on I his went, hands. On his hand. And That's I went, okay, I get it. Now I know why I'm here. And it was beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful things I've mm. ever seen. And so that was really kind of it, right? Um, because I also believe that people have two lives. And the second one starts when we realize we have only one. And so that kid created his own purpose that day. Uh, look what I did. I walked across the fire on my hands when everybody else was walking on their feet. Right. You know, when I do seminars uh, and I go out and corporations. Which, just, just to pause real quick as a reminder of how blessed most of us are truly to have the physical ability to get up and walk each day, the physical ability to go earn and provide for ourselves, for our families each day, 
it's really a, a, a reminder in that because as everybody who could walk on their own two feet is sitting there maybe contemplating if they should do this, maybe not do this, whatever. Here's, here's a guy who's recreating his, his whole ability to believe in himself and goes and walks on his hands. Yeah, well, that was Just in Paris. What, what you guys are seeing right there, we were in Paris in 2019. That's my son next to me there. Uh, this is Friedrich, a super, super cool guy. Again, we're in Paris. We did a world record glass walk there for 1,500 people. And one of the one of the people that were helping me came up, ran up and grabbed me and said, hey, this guy needs to talk to you. And I went over and I, and I met him and he goes, hey, man, I'd like, to, I'd like to kind of walk on my hands. And I said, let's do it. Why not? And so that's, that's what right. we did there. Because at this point, you've seen it before. There's so I've seen him walk on way. fire, so why can't yeah. he walk on broken glass, right? Um, and yeah. so, you know, when I do my seminars, I put a picture of a guy on the screen behind me and I just leave it up there. I don't, I don't say anything about it for at least 30 minutes. So, and you can see that he's clearly standing at the top of Mount Everest. His name's Eric Weinmeyer. And so we're kind of talking and I'm, you know, getting people to start to understand that life is all about state management. Life is all about the story you tell yourself. Life is all about the story that you create. So when something happens to you, I don't mm -hmm. care what it is. You create the story. So create a good one. Um, and yeah. so uh, I get to a point and I'll go, so who here can tell me uh, where Eric is standing? And it's pretty obvious. They'll go, well, you know, he's standing at the top of Mount Everest. That's correct. So let me tell you something else about Eric. He's climbed the seven highest mountains on earth. And he summited every single one of them. And let me tell you something about Eric. He's blind. So guess what, ladies and gentlemen? I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear mm -hmm. your lame-ass excuse about why you can't or can't do something. If a blind man can climb the seven highest mountains on this planet, you can do anything you decide you want to do. And the only reason you're not doing it is one of two reasons. One, you're allowing fear to control your life. Or you just want to make up a story so you get attention. So my, my encouragement to you is that you are here for a reason. So find out what it is. There is a purpose here. You know, it works. Um, yeah. So. No, no, um, it does. I mean, one of the, one of the themes, uh, again, I shared in that I'm not going to turn this episode into promoting my book. I'll, I've got a whole day plan with Chris to do that in August, but, uh, to the point of what you just shared, you know, the story recreate, I often tell people like, You've created this major motion picture, IMAX theater quality, big IMAX screen and seats, and you're the only one watching. That's right. No one cares. No one cares. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, you know, it's not something that should hold you back. It's, it's this big thing that you've created and you're there on your own. And all you have to do is just get up, walk out on that theater. Well, now, what does it say? That doesn't change. That doesn't change what happened, you know? And I mean, I, sh I share this as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. It's part of what I talk about in my book. And I look at that as I'm here now in this time. I've come to realize it. I'm here now to stand up for those one in six other men that are struggling with this and just can't get the words out of their mouth because well, that's you know the story that's held them back. Um, and so I don't say any of what I just said to minimize anything that's happened to anybody. Of course. I say it to say, I'm there with you with that horrible, big, major motion picture story. And I got up and walked out of the damn theater. Uh, I love that. 
Um, you know, people ask all the time, if you could go back in your life and change something in your childhood, what would it be? And my answer is nothing. Why would I do that? Yeah. Because now I'm depriving myself of the wisdom going into my future. Mm-hmm. No. I, I, I had to go through to get where I am now because what doesn't challenge you doesn't change you. Period. Mm-hmm. It's yep. just the way it is. And I tell people, don't look at my glory. Just listen to my story. Because mm-hmm. we all go through it. It's just the way it is. Because you know what I've learned, Jeff? People don't care about how much money you've made or how successful you are, or how great you think you are. You know what they want to hear about? Your struggles and how you overcame them. That's right. Because those they can use. Those are real. Because we all go through it. And that's the hardest part to go through. So there you are telling your story about your sexual abuse. And if you can help one guy, by all means. And who knows? You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a, a male. It can be a female that you tell. Yeah, so, it's one, for, for women, it's one in four. Yeah, because that's high. Right. right. Um, and, so, and, and, you know, and I think that number is actually reflective of just uh, abuse as a minor, not, you know, assaults as a woman but right. as an adult woman but but at, at any rate you know yeah i mean to me there's there's an often cliched statement of it doesn't happen to us it happens for us for and us. i challenge people to really get comfortable with that for us part you know for me there were there were other young men two of them are no longer on this earth due to suicide hmm. and i looked at it as and, and, and this, this grates people at times. It really says, how could you possibly say what I'm about to say? I believe God put me in that place. Take that abuse because I could handle it. And, and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't be that creation that was ended from that evil. Right. And now well, I'm here to talk about it. And everybody's got that power to believe in that connection to their story. Right. Right. Well, I ask all the time in the audience, why don't people get what they want in life? And I get the, you know, I get the, I get the answer. You know, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the education. I don't have the background. background. I have the resources. I'm too young. I'm too old. Blah, 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 blah. No. Why you don't get what you want in life is there's a story you created about why you can't have it. And I'll guarantee you mm-hmm. that it's a lie. Yep. So stop lying to yourself. Step into your greatness. I get stepping into your greatness is scary. I get it. When I got hired by Google, you know, because when I got to the end with Tony in 2014, right? Um, I'm driving down the road, my phone rings and it's Google and they want to hire me. And I'm like, okay, you know, how often does that happen? And right. so we got, we got to talking and, you know, I was available and they wanted to know whether I was under any non-compete or contractual obligation. No, homeboy's a free agent. I can do what I want. And then, the, and so we started talking about a firewalk. Well, they had 148 executives that were graduating in Mountain View. And so I said, well, look, man, I can't do this um, during the day. I can't do a firewalk. I've got to be able to see the coals. I got to be able to see the redness and the, and, the, and the temperature. And I regulate that based on the color of the coals. And I use a shovel to beat them down. And there's just things that I do. So it's, it's, not, it's a safety issue. I said, but let me tell you what I can do instead of, because this, they, ha- they wanted to graduate in the middle of the afternoon. They wanted to do a, a lunch and graduate and, you know, do the experience and then have a couple of beers after. And I said, well, we can do a glass walk. And that's where I'll teach these graduates to walk on broken glass. They went, what? 
walk on broken glass? I go, yeah. They go, oh, that's interesting. Tell us about that. So I did. And they went for it. In fact, when I got there, they were like, a couple questions for it. You know, there's a scene from Die Hard. Um, and before we bring you out on stage, we want to show this where Bruce Willis is running across the broken glass, right? Feet are all bloody. Are you okay if we show that? You're my kind of people, man. Let's do it. Yep. And they wanted to play that song by Annie Lennox, you know, walking on broken glass. Yep. Right? So I said, yeah, sure. And they brought me out and, and, and away we went. In fact, we did two gigs for, uh, for, uh, for, uh, Google. And then, you know, I went on to, from there, I went to NASA and then, uh, Notre Dame and then Virginia Tech and Remax and Heineken and the entrepreneur organization and Chick-fil-A and the YMCA. And I mean, it just kept going. But when I was flying out there to Google for my first gig, right? I got halfway there and all of a sudden that little guy jumped up on my shoulder and said, Hey, you're going to Google. What makes you think you're good enough to be able to be mm. hired by Google? Right. So even so, after, even, even after, after all that, nearly 20 years of helping others rise to that challenge and make change, there's that little son of a bitch on your shoulder. And you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You know, and it's just yakking. And you know what's yep. cool? All of a sudden, my other, other buddy jumped up on the other side and he goes, like whispered in my ear, he goes, uh, Dave. Uh, just so you know, you set a world record in London in 2005. You firewalked 12,300 people. So tell him to shut the hell up. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, it was like this conflict. It's like this, you know, these voices going off in your head. And, you know, we all go through that. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not worthy. We're not smart enough. We're not good enough. And, you know, you really got to silence that. Yeah. I'm now I'm the voice. I will lead, not follow. I will believe, not doubt. And so you start like an incantation, if you will. The next thing you know, you know, again, it's all state management. It really is physiology yeah. and, and what you're telling yourself and you get into your rituals and, and, you know, yep. I, I, but you know what, even to this day, every once in a while, um, I get doubt. The cool thing based on the way I've lived my life, I can overcome it because it's, here's the key. It's understanding that everything we do in life is there's a pattern, a pattern of doubt. What, what has to happen for those doubts to come into your head? You know, uh, but to, if you don't eat right, that's a pattern. If you do eat right, that's a pattern. If you work out, that's a pattern. So Tony teaches it. You know, once you understand patterns and how they work and how they evolve, and you yep. can overcome the ones that don't serve you, can you change your life in a heartbeat? Yeah, yeah that's uh, very, very smart and great wisdom to share. Um, as we coming near to wrap our time up, I'd be remiss. So when you uh, got on my schedule um, and I saw the connection to Tony, uh, I just, and I knew it was like, okay, this is going to be a good show because it's kind of the way the universe works, right? I'm uh, looking at a little Dan Kennedy. Dan Kennedy is a, okay, you know Dan? So oh, yeah. time marketer. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's the man. I actually worked with Tony way back in the day yes, he when did. he got on infomercials with Gunthy Renker. Absolutely. And so I'm reading when you get on my schedule, and I wish, shucks, I should have, wait, nope. I thought I had it up here. I guess it's downstairs. Um, so I'm reading a little uh, piece, that, an expertly created marketing piece by Dan called The 11 Re. 
And really, it's just a long-form sales letter for his services. But inside that was about the positioning of Tony on TV through infomercials, which is how you met him way, way back. And so I just wanted to share that because I thought it was just so interesting that I've been a Dan follower and fan and friend for 15 years now. or Yeah, 15 years now. And, uh, uh, here we are today. So the lesson there is if Dan wouldn't have shared and believed mm. in his greatness to stand aside Guffy Renker and go after that client. Yep. Maybe we're not here today at all. Nope. No way. Um, you know, and, and that, that little ripple effect's real, right? Right. Well, you know, it's funny about, about Tony's infomercials back in the day. People thought it was a show. Mm-hmm. They thought Tony That's Robbins you know had a show. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's when you know you've done an infomercial right when people think it's I mean, actually television. Absolutely. And so, Tony used to get that all the time. Hey, Tony, I saw your show. Hey. Okay. It's an infomercial. Thank you, Gunther Ranker. They nailed it. Because, you know, Tony would back in the day, you know, if you remember, it was him and the Floby. Mm-hmm. That device, you put it on your head and it would suck your hair up and it would cut it. I think it was called. Oh, man. All right. Yeah. I, I don't know if Dan had anything to do with that. Probably because I know they sold a lot of them. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, he's he's been on uh, involved yeah. in a lot. Gold by the inch. Um, uh, there was another personal development program, the Think and Grow Rich program, oh, Cyber yeah. Cybernetics. So yeah, yeah, yeah he's oh, yeah. he's been in a lot of it. Yeah, and uh, so, man, I've just enjoyed our time together. Oh, so wow. to catch people up to your journey, so through. 2014, you worked with Tony, and then you had your own career for about 10 years, you know, and now you retired in the Appalachian Mountains. Well, I'm, you know, I'm still, I'm what, still what, at it. You know, people, okay. two things happen right now. People call me, hey, Dave, my company's melting down. I need your help. Uh, we'll write you a check. You come bring the firewalk, the board break, you know, to, to the company, take care of everything. And let's, let's create, let's crush the dissension, you know, because everybody's fighting over, you know, Donald Trump and Biden mask wearing and vaccines. It's like, shut up. Look, man, from a company right. perspective, a CEO is like, if you don't fix that, let me tell you something, your, your production's going to tank and they know it. Right. So they can call me and I come in and we fix that. Right. Cause it goes back to you know, the day after I do what I do for them. It's like the day after my firewalk, all those people, we're all standing there. We're all getting along amazingly. Right? That's what the firewalk's yeah. going to do. The firewalk doesn't care what you think about Donald Trump or what you think about right. Joe Biden. It doesn't, doesn't right. care. Because it brings us back to a humanistic um, um, uh, culture. And so so they can write a check. Well, last year, I started the Dave Albin Firewalk Academy. And I got another one coming up in October. I think we we literally have two spots left. I do nine people at a time. We've sold seven tickets. Uh, And so what, what you do is you come and you spend a week with me. So basically, I have four types of clients for that. Of like corporate America, where they send somebody from the HR department, they send them, we train them, they go back in their own company, and they're able to facilitate all these corporate team building, life-changing experiences on their own. And then yep. I have uh, um, entrepreneurs and business owners who want to come learn it and then take that back into their own companies. Then I have trainers and coaches, if you will, um, come to me, and then you know we train them 
and they spend a week with me here in the Appalachian Mountains, and we teach them the glass walk and the fire walk and the board break and the arrow break and the rebar bending and the storytelling and everything, right? How to, how to, how to, how to sell yourself, how to join a chamber of commerce, how to get your name out there, what to say, what not to say, how to talk to fire marshals, how to get, how to get events approved, how to get the insurance, all of it. So when they come in and they right. leave, they're done. They can yep. facilitate. And then they've got me as a backup, right? right? Like I went to the Dave Albin Firewalk Academy and I was certified by the guy, you know, did Tony Robbins for almost two decades. So that's coming up in October. That's all on my website. <clears throat> so that's cool. kind of where we are now. But I am scaling back. I got two grandkids. I got a granddaughter that was just born on Good Friday. And I want to spend yeah, more congratulations. time. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations on the growing family. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Thank you. It's awesome. Man, I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed our time here. Thanks. Um, Me too. And I appreciate you. Appreciate you sharing as much as you did, uh, the amount that you did, the way you did. So thank you. My pleasure. Uh, man. Thank you thank so you. much for that. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Let's do it again. Yep. We will. You're welcome. Cool. You're welcome. Thanks again for being on the show and everyone else. Take care. Right. Remember what they've shared with us. If it doesn't challenge us, it doesn't change us. So between this show and next show, go out and make that challenge happen. Make that change happen. We'll see you next week and take care. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Big Ticket Life. You've heard from another amazing guest living their own big ticket life. And now it's time to live your. First, I'd love for you to take me up on my free gift to you. Find your gift at gift.thebigticketlife.live. That's gift.thebigticketlife.live. Live. See, all your life you've been told what is and what is impossible by the loudest voices from the cheapest seats. It's time to finally do life and business on your terms. Sure, you've heard similar things, but without clarity on what can be done, it's easy to have your customers, employees, maybe even partners, and your spouse keep you from truly living a big ticket life. My big ticket methods shift you into that investor seat in your business, away from commodity and away from competition into a market of one so you can finally live your own big ticket life. So my gift to you is for you to book your discovery call today where we'll uncover first the Chivo behaviors, those chief everything officer behaviors that hold you back and why moving into the investor seat in your own business is critical. Two, we'll uncover the premium position that's up for grabs right now in your market that you're missing out on. And three, which big ticket methodologies are just waiting to be dropped into your business to explode your sales and profits. So again, thanks for listening to this episode. I'd love for you to take action right now. Accept this gift. Book your call. Go to gift.thebigticketlife.live. Again, that's gift.thebigticketlife.live.